So today we have a world-famous opera star, fashion <laughs> retailer, and unabashed diva. Please welcome Celine Papischowska. <laughs> could you could you tone down the world-famous bit? <laughs> I don't want people to think I'm crazy. We'll start with an obvious question. Like I said then, you go by the name Papischowska, but your family name is Papischowski. Why do you make that distinction? You know what? Uh, Ska is actually the female version of the nomenclature. Although if I was really going to do it correctly, um, it should be Skaya, Papazhevskaya. All right. It means daughter, it means daughter of Papazhevskaya, uh, So daughter of my dad. Um, that's in the, in the Russian form of the nomenclature. I started using Papazhevska because that's when people started actually pronouncing my name properly. For some reason, Papazhevsky, just, they couldn't get it. But um, one of my drama professors always referred to me as Madame Papazhevska. And in his uh, European accent, it sounded so cool. So I thought, okay, I'm going with that. And lo and behold, everybody suddenly started pronouncing it right. I always start at the beginning, so... Tell me where you were born, what was the area like, anything you remember from family life when you were young? I was born in the hospital for sick children because oh. when I was born, I wasn't breathing and I had to be revived and kept on an incubator for a few weeks and then I was transferred to St. Michael's Hospital. So I always have to thank the hospital for sick children because they obviously did a really great job on my lungs. Yeah. <laughs> and did you mainly grow up in like the Scarborough area? Uh, no, no. Actually, when I was a little girl, we lived right in downtown Toronto for a few years, um, right at Queen and Parliament. And the other sound that I always find very comforting is the sound of Toronto streetcars because it went right past the front window, just a few feet between the house and across the sidewalk to the road with the streetcars going by. So that clatter, 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 clatter is always a really comforting sound to me. Yeah, I grew up right in downtown Toronto, and then we didn't move to Scarborough until I was eight years old. All right. And I had a couple of siblings kind of dragging along with me. And when you were at school, were you a a good student? I was. I was a nerd. I was (laughs) the darling of all the teachers. They all adored me. Uh, Even my math teacher, because I may not have been very good at it, but I tried really hard. And uh, English teachers loved me. Um, I had this fantastic teacher in grade six, primarily a music teacher. And she kind of heard something in my voice and would give me all of the solos in, uh, in choir. Yeah, I would win all kinds of awards. I, I did public speaking. I did, I'd get sent off to be high school representative for, you know, this or that. Uh, I wasn't a terribly great social success, but I was a pretty academic success. Well, I've heard about your academic success because apparently you starred on a TV game show called Reach for the Top. Yes. Which anyone listening in the UK is uh, very similar to University Challenge. Tell me about that experience. Oh, oh, that was uh, great fun, especially all the the rehearsals be, where we would rehearse various quiz uh, formats. 
and I think we rehearsed for I don't know how long. There were four of us on the team. So we'd show up early in the morning and the teachers who were uh, our coaches would fire these questions at us and we'd have to try and answer as quickly as we could. And I absolutely loved those those uh, early morning meetings because I had a super crush on the guy who sat next to me because, oh, it was, it was heaven. <laughs> <laughs> and sitting next to him on, on Reach for the Top is as close as I ever got. Uh. <laughs> and Alex Trebek, Alex Trebek of uh, Jeopardy fame was actually the host back then and he kept mispronouncing my name he kept calling me Cecil and how well did you do at, at this uh, at the competition oh we we only got uh, uh, got through one game and then we got knocked out in the next one oh, dear. <laughs> so but the game that we won was on my birthday so <clears throat> I considered it a bit of a, a treat <laughs> yes yes and I remember um, that they asked me one question. It just so happened that I had discovered an opera at the library, uh, a recording called The Tales of Hoffman. And I was absolutely enamored of that opera. And I was playing it and playing it and wandering around the halls in school, uh, humming the tunes. And Alex Trebek, one of the questions he asked was, who wrote the four-act fantasy opera Tales of Hoffman? I couldn't believe my ears. And I got so excited, I didn't even hit the buzzer. I just jumped to my feet and yelled, Offenbach! Jacques Offenbach! I can't believe you asked that! So I got the question right, but the audience just kind of fell over themselves laughing, probably wondering why the fat chick is so excited about this thing that nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> and was that actually on television? Yeah. So yeah. can I find this on YouTube somewhere? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt whether the CBC kept all that stuff. I'm sure there's a big burn pile somewhere of melted cellulose. <laughs> So what did you do after you left school? Uh, Scarborough College, and I uh, did as many theater, basically an English literature program, but also as many theater courses as I could sneak in there. And, uh, and then I graduated, and I moved to downtown Toronto and lived kind of the bohemian life. Draper Street in Toronto is now like super high-end with million-dollar townhouses, but at the time, it was uh, really kind of like a rundown neighborhood just next to the Globe and Mail building. And there were, um, there were a couple of artists, uh, painters who lived there, and me trying to, uh, uh, trying to get into theater. Um, let me see. Robert Markle, Canadian painter Robert Markle, <clears throat> used to teach at a school nearby, so he'd crash in our house for maybe about four or five nights out of the week. Somewhere there is a painting called After a Hard Day's Night, Celine and Opera, because I used to, uh, uh, I was waitressing, and I'd come home late at night and throw myself on the living room floor with some headphones and just play opera for a while until I could kind of settle down and go to sleep. So, uh, yeah, so he named one of his paintings after me. Wow. That'll be worth some money. Yeah, maybe, yeah, I guess. Not my money, unfortunately. <laughs> Only my name. <laughs> was it around this time that you worked at Harbourfront? No, it was after Harbourfront. Oh. Uh, yeah, that was that was in the very beginnings, actually. It would have been around the, the 70s. Um, 
uh, yeah, I guess around 78, something like that. So Harborfront hadn't been around for a while, and they were still trying to kind of find their place. Oh, very strange thing. After I got married, I found out that my husband at the time had actually been working at Harborfront at the same time I was up in the architect's office, the guys who were planning out uh, the whole complex. So he remembered me, but I didn't remember him at all. So I guess I guess that was an omen. (laughs) (laughs) And what did you do there when you worked there? Oh, I was uh, I was receptionist until they found out that I could actually write and speak. And then they would they started assigning things like I I got to write some of the articles in the newsletter that they'd send out. And uh, I hosted a few of the um, uh, music programs that they that they had going on there. So that seemed to happen several times. I'd get a job like stuffing envelopes and then they'd find out that that I actually was very good at writing and I kind of get bumped up to more complex duties but without a bump up in pay so <laughs> he did a few uh, courses and things and uh, I think at one point you went to Illinois what made you go to America oh I had a close friend at another one of the bohemian households there was me there was an operatic bass a classical clarinetist and two architecture students and we all shared uh, a house together that had been bought from Bob Ray. <laughs> so anyway, my classical bass friend uh, was working with a coach named John Woosman and through him I met John Woosman and did some coaching with him and he was really, really good and really helpful and I thought it would be uh, a good career move to make connections with people down in the U.S. Which, uh, which it did, actually. Um, most of the stuff that I did, I worked with John Woosman, I worked with Louis Quillico, Regina Resnick. These are all really big names in the classical music world. Uh, the kind of voice that I have, I'll say have because it's still working, not bad, uh, was an unusual kind of voice. It's called Hochdramatischer Sopran, uh, which basically translates as heroic soprano that Ooh, means that's that, a good title uh, i know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it means it means that it's a it's a kind of soprano voice that has a, a dark um metallic quality to it a lot of strength so that it can cut over a large orchestra uh because uh, so this is specifically for operas like like Wagner and Lake Verdi, um, Strauss, they had really big orchestras, like maybe, you know, 120 pieces, lots of brass. So in order to to cut through that and and be able to balance your voice with with all those instruments, you have to have a big sound and a really, really sharp focus to that sound. So it's a particular voice type. And there's a, a counterpart in the male is a helden tenor, which means heroic tenor. Yeah, and there aren't a lot of those kinds of voices. So I almost felt this incredible obligation to really, really work my hardest and work my best and get that technique absolutely solid 
and reliable uh, because there aren't a lot of voices like like mine out there. And this is these this wasn't just delusion on my part. This was coaches at the Metropolitan Opera, coaches at uh, in Toronto, in Germany, in Italy, all telling me the same thing. Your voice is meant for Wagner, so that's the repertoire you have to be guiding yourself into. It's kind of daunting. <laughs> it's kind of like somebody telling you that, you know, you're Napoleon. How do you do? Oh, you must be Napoleon. Um, to be told that you're a hochdramatischer, that you should be singing the repertoire that, that Birgit Nielsen sang. I just never had, I had a lot of determination. I didn't have the, the absolute ironclad, steely self-confidence to just take myself all the way. There's also the fact that it's one of the last voices that generally develop. Um, you're usually in your late 30s when you get that kind of voice really under control, which means it's incredibly expensive. I mean, it would take me six months to save up enough money to go fly off somewhere to do a five-minute audition. That which was partly why I'd be crawling across the stage begging for a job. <laughs> But the thing that I'm really happy about now is I did it. Like, I, I really put myself in a, in a position to be able to sing that music and be credible enough that experts in the field told me that I was the real thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, the real thing. You decided to go to Europe. Whereabouts did you move to? And why did you decide to go? They have, especially in Germany and Austria, they have opera theaters there the way we have hockey arenas in Canada. <laughs> like every small town will have a theater in the center. And um, that's where so many North American singers would go in order to be able to actually get experience because they couldn't do it here. The other thing that would happen is of the small companies that there were around here, nobody was doing the kind of repertoire that my voice was growing into. Usually people start out singing, you know, Mozart, Rossini, um, Gilbert and Sullivan, things where they have very small orchestras. Meanwhile, my voice was kind of bellowing out, as the coaches would tell me, you're like a thoroughbred racehorse, and we have to get you trained to be able to stay on the track. <laughs> there weren't any programs around that could help me do that, because nobody, nobody was doing apprenticeship Wagner. <laughs> so I pretty well had to see what I could find in Europe. And Europe, I had some interest in uh, in Europe, and again, the coaches and the uh, uh, the agents were interested in representing me, but I think I was able to afford going back three times and stay there for uh, a long period of time. This was like major financing I had to mm. pull together in order to be able to do this. And uh, two of the times that I went, it just so happened that there weren't any contracts opening up for my kind of voice. So that's what I mean about so often it's a crapshoot. And which countries did you go to? Uh, Germany, Austria. I was in France. I did the, the Voce Verdiane in a competition in um, Busetto, which was Verdi's birthplace. 
Yeah, I did a couple of competitions, and I'd get, you know, like two or three levels in, and then I'd get knocked out. So, so you know, I wasn't quite almost there, but not quite. Winning competitions doesn't always mean, sometimes it just means you're good at winning competitions. It uh, doesn't always mean that, that you know, you're going to be the one to, to stay the course. Uh, and a lot of those people that, that I met there, um, I've Googled their names and never come across anything. So, Well, I interviewed my friend the other day and he said that whenever he does competitions, he always goes to make a name for himself not to win. Yeah, yeah, that, that's basically more like it. So, so, you know, I got to have an interview with uh, uh, Carlo Bergonzi, who was the president of the, of the Verdi competition, who was a great, great Verdi tenor. And uh, he was, you know, really encouraging. Buona materialista, buona materialista. Ma tecnica, no. <laughs> so, you know, basically what he was telling me was that a really good voice, lots to work with. You have to uh, improve your technique. I took his advice and worked on technique. You do that, you work on it until you die <laughs> or stop singing. And what's it like singing in a different language rather than English? It's, um, it's hard work. You, have to, you really have to know what it is you're singing. You, you have to translate word-for-word -word translation of everything that you do plus every, everybody else. Uh, so basically, I've got a whole shelf full of English, Spanish, English, German, English, Italian, Russian, you know, dictionaries uh, so that I can go through everything and translate because it's theater. You have to be able to connect the sound that you're making. Now, opera is primarily a, a, a vocal, a musical art form, but it's also theater. In order to, to really make that music come alive, you have to connect the colors of your voice to the words that you're singing. So you have to know right down to the ground, you have to know exactly what your motivation for, for all of those sounds, what the motivation is. And so it's a lot of work, but it's incredibly meditative and joyful when it's working. When it's working, you get like a, a physical buzz. You're, you're tapped into a bigger energy. Um, and uh, yeah, so when it's working, it's, it's, it's heaven. <laughs> and that's what keeps people going. It's not the idea of being rich or being famous. It's the actual doing of the art form that is so joyful that it keeps you going through all the crap and all the drudgery and all the humiliation. And do you speak any other languages? I, I, God, I've been living in an English-speaking place uh, for the last 20 years, so I haven't had a lot of call. Um, but, you know, I, I managed just fine. Yeah, I, I best in German and Italian, which uh, now German I learned at the Goethe Institute in Toronto, Italian I learned at the University of Toronto, and then just kept working on my own. French I learned in the Ontario high school system, and it's my weakest language. French the most useful language for the country you're living in now. <laughs> I know, I know, that's the irony. <laughs> 
So I, I managed okay. I was on my own in all of those uh, uh, all of those countries. I was traveling by myself. I had to figure out, you know, what the, the what the train schedules were and how to get a room for the night and uh, or, or more than one night. How to get to where I needed to be. And in each of those countries, I managed just fine. And it's a lot harder without the internet as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Pre-internet. I think the most frustrating time I ever had was trying to figure out the instructions on a German washing machine in the laundromat. <laughs> that, that one reduced me to tears. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you met some uh, characters while studying the arts. Do you want to tell me about some of them? Oh, well... There's there's a, a myth about opera singers that they're all kind of like off the wall and they're they're you know crazy people and wild divas and all that, and it's actually not true because you have to keep yourself so disciplined. You have to keep your body. It's a very athletic vocal uh, technique. You're really using your entire body, the balance of your entire body from from the top of your head to to right down to your heels and toes. You have to keep your body uh, really healthy. You have to stay mentally alert. You're performing with an orchestra that the music is going and going and going and you're you're having to remember everything. You're picking up cues from the conductor. You're moving around a very big uh, stage. Um, you're interacting with other people and all this time the music is going and going and going and you have to keep this athletic function just constantly moving forward. Um, oh, I'll tell you a funny story though. As I said, I studied with people like Louis Quillico and one time I was uh, meeting up, I was heading over to his apartment in Manhattan and I, I went to the apartment door and somebody was just coming out so they let me in, which I doubt would ever happen in Manhattan ever again. Uh, but I probably looked pretty harmless. So they let me in and I just got in the elevator and went straight up and knocked at his apartment door. And he threw the door open and there he was in a shirt and no pants. <laughs> so my jaw kind of dropped. His jaw dropped right to the floor and the door slammed in my face. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I stood there thinking, oh, now what do I do? Am I getting my lesson? <laughs> and within a few minutes, yeah, the door opened up again. And there was Louis in his pants and his shirt, uh, just blushing bright, bright red all over and explaining that, you know, oh, I, I thought you were my wife. <laughs> she just stepped out for milk and he was expecting you to show up at any moment. Uh, he was a little less intimidating after that. <laughs> As I said, I studied with people like Louis Quillico and Regina Resnick, both of whom were great, great stars. I mean, Google those names and, and pages and pages will come up. With Louis, uh, he was one of the great baritones, one of the great Verdi baritones of the 20th century. So during lessons, sometimes he'd demonstrate by singing some phrases from whatever role he was singing at the Metropolitan Opera at that time. Well, I'm standing four feet away from him and he would let loose with that voice and it was just like like oral dark chocolate wafting over you and my eyes would roll back in my head and my knees would go weak. I was like, what? What did you say, Louis? <laughs> Sorry, could you repeat that? <laughs>
Are there any particular concerts that stand out in your memory? Oh, yes. Okay, there was one experience that I had singing the Verdi Requiem. Um, I was singing the second soprano. And this was at a, a convent, on the grounds of a convent in Illinois, called Our Lady of the Snows. There was kind of an, an outdoor amphitheater and kind of a stage, and then there was this bowl that the audience was sort of nestled into. And then further, further on beyond the grounds was the building of the convent. First of all, it was a real experience singing on a June night in Illinois um, with all the insects. They have lots and lots of nocturnal insects. So, so the conductor would be, you know, waving, waving his baton and there were clouds of insects all around him because they were attracted to the lights that were on the stage. All of us, I think every single one, one of the, the chorus and all of us soloists, we, we all ate a few bugs. <laughs> and, um, and at one point there was the biggest, ugliest thing sitting on my score. And every time I'd turn the page, I'd turn the page and this thing, instead of flying off, would just kind of lift its legs and sit on the next page. That would not go away, and I was too terrified to actually uh, <laughs> flick it. I was afraid the score might go too. So eventually it, it, uh, uh, it flew off without taking a dive down my throat. Thank God, because I don't think I would have survived that one. But the best part was that there's a section called the Lux Eterna, eternal light. It starts with the violins, all of the violins doing a tremolo. It's just beautiful and lovely. And in the, this cobalt night um, that was warm and soft, the violins started doing their tremolo. And then I come in with Luxiterna, Luceteis Domine, uh, shine down upon us. I, w I had just taken a breath. And the bells uh, for, I guess, evening vespers started ringing in the convent, and they were floating over the grounds. So the conductor just put his baton down, and we stopped, and we listened for the bells, and then they ended, and he took up his baton, and the violins did their tremolo again, and then I came in. That was absolute magic. It was so perfectly in tune with uh, this incredible music that, that Verdi wrote for the Requiem Mass. Uh, that's probably the best moment I've ever had singing, ever. Apart from our wedding. And your wedding. <laughs> and that, that, that was the second best. <laughs> Actually, it was. It was great singing at your wedding because that... Aria, it's, it's Odel mio dolce ardor, it's from Paris ed Elena. So it's Paris, Prince Paris, searching for Helen of Troy. And this is uh, the aria where he's explaining, you know, I, you are my breath of life, you are my soul, I searched for you, um, I called for you, and, and now, you know, here you are. Finally, finally, you're, you're with me. I just thought it was so perfect for you yeah. two because you guys are just so, so good together <laughs> that uh, I adored getting to sing that aria in such a perfect uh, situation. So there you go. What's your favorite venue that you sung at? There's a couple of churches around here that are really wonderful to sing 
because they're acoustically really live. Now you don't want something that's too live. I did a, a concert in Germany, a hall that was this long, 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 long oblong. And it was actually like a meeting hall rather than a real theater, but the orchestra was set up at one end. The hall was so long and it was so live that we'd hear our voices coming back about a second after. So it was really difficult because you're hearing your own voice and the orchestra like just a moment after you've made the sound. So it was really, really distracting and... and Difficult to keep in time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you had to kind of like just go right inside your head, concentrate really hard on the beat that you're keeping and try not to listen to anything else because, oh, it was weird. Um, that was also the place where, where half the orchestra and me and a bunch of the other singers all got salmonella poisoning. So <laughs> altogether, it was not, not a happy experience. <laughs> Strangely enough, there's a barn not far from, from where we live. The owner of the barn wanted to switch from being strictly a dairy farm. He wanted to do agritourism. And this was 20 years ago that he had this idea. He was one of the first in Prince Edward County to like really want to make a big investment in agritourism. So um, he wanted to convert his, some of the outbuildings and the barn. He had this 140-year-old barn he wanted to convert them into accommodations and also uh, a farm store. So he hired Rick, my husband, uh, who is a, a commercial interior designer, to go and take a look at the buildings and kind of, you know, give him an idea of what the possibilities were. So I thought I'd go along for the ride. And while Rick and, and Mark were in the other buildings, I wandered into the barn where there were still cows. And I, you know, stood there looking around and looking at the shape of the barn and this beautiful wood interior and thought, I'll betcha, I'll betcha this has a great acoustic and I'll betcha it would be nice and warm, not too bouncy uh, like a stone cathedral can, uh, can sometimes be too live yeah. where, where, again, the sound is bouncing all over the place. This will be just enough. So I started doing some scales and of course the cows joined in <laughs> and I could just feel it. I could just feel the, the acoustic just go zipping along. So I asked Mark, I said, please, before you convert this into sweets, could I please have this, this uh, barn for one afternoon to do a recital? And he agreed. And then somehow that kind of put an idea in his head that instead of cutting up the barn to create sweets, uh, like a B&B, &B, he'd turn it into an event venue. So I was kind of responsible for inspiring one of the loveliest event venues in the county. Mm -hmm. It's it's a beautiful structure. They've done theater there. It's mostly used now for weddings and things, but they have done theater. There have been different concerts, lots of different concerts. I've been able to do a couple of concerts there. Yeah, so that, that actually is a really favorite venue. And, you know, from time to time I've had chances to sing on, uh, you know, various stages in, in Europe, auditioning in just wonderful halls. I was a, a winner in Illinois of the Metropolitan Auditions, and again, this was like I'd get 
two or three levels in and then I'd get knocked out. So that's okay, two or three levels, you know, that's, that's pretty good. Um, so I got to sing in this wonderful hall in Chicago where all of the great, great singers have, have been, have done, um, have done recitals and concerts themselves. So, so that's, it's a bit of a historic feeling to think that I'm standing on the same stage where uh, Franco Corelli and Maria Callas, where Maria Callas stood. I used the same elevator that Sir George Schulte uh, used to get to his um, orchestra pit. Things like that. It's just kind of, I don't know, it's, it's a little exciting. It was kind yeah. of like, like going to uh, Giuseppe Verdi's um, estate in Italy and going to his restored bedroom, which everything is as it was when he died, um, and seeing the volume of Shakespeare and the Bible on the end table next to his bed uh, and reading, you know, having read his letters and knowing that he always kept a Bible and a volume of Shakespeare next to his bed. And there they were. <laughs> so, so things like that are yeah. exciting. And then getting to sing in, in Verdi's birthplace uh, on the stage at the Teatro di Bussetto. I haven't had all that much of a professional career, but I have had fantastic exper experiences, and I've got to meet some of the greatest artists in the world, mm -hmm. people that I respect, and it's super icing on the cake to find out that they had respect for me as well. Yeah, yeah. Bloomfield's a tiny village a couple of hours east of Toronto that everyone knows for its ice cream in your shop. How did you end up moving there? We had friends who had a, um, a summer home, and for three years, they had been inviting, inviting us to come visit their summer home. The summer of 2000, Rick had just completed a huge project for uh, a big client in Chicago. It was uh, just a trade show exhibition that was the size of a small house that all had to be transported, taken apart, transported, put back together, Anyway, it was a big project, so we decided to treat ourselves with a little vacation in Ottawa, and we thought we'd finally visit our friends on the way back from Ottawa, and we just fell in love with this area. It reminded us a lot of the Finger Lakes in upstate New York, and we loved the Finger Lakes. So here was this place very much like, like Odessa in uh, New York, but we didn't have to worry about the currency exchange. <laughs> so, so we actually did fall in love. And as it turned out, there was a, a space available that one of the local B&Bs was planning to rent out. So we rented out the space because Rick had, uh, after 30 years of, of doing all these display designs and showrooms and things like that, he had a warehouse full of antiques and furniture and things like that that he wanted to get rid of. And we thought, ooh, this will be a great excuse to come back every weekend if we just sell things off in this space. And by the end of the summer, we realized that we just had to figure out how to live here. So it turned out that there was a building that was for sale that had been on the market for three years. Everybody was frightened off from it because it had been built in the 1830s. Actually, the first legal document we could find uh, was dated 1841, but it had been built earlier than that. 
it really needed upgrades and restoration and everybody had been frightened off. Well, Rick had done work like that before. He had done some restoration work on a couple of properties in Toronto that were historical. So, uh, so he knew what to do and he was going to call in a bunch of favors and, and arm twist the rest. <laughs> and so we went in with our friends uh, who originally turned us on to Bloomfield, we went half and half in investing in this building. And it turned out to be the best thing we ever did. It's been 20 years, and Rick and I still look around and still say, do you believe we live here? We live in this place. We get to stay. So it was a big adjustment. Um, when we first moved here, uh, there was no music. There was nothing going on. There was no theater. Uh, there was a jazz festival that had just started, and there were a lot of visual artists who were living here. But classical, forget it. There was nothing. I'd like to think that I maybe was a bit of a catalyst for that because a friend of mine, uh, his name is Guidon Sachs, and he's a Grammy winner and, and um, really, really fine opera singer, had kind of been kicking around the idea that, you know, we should do something together. There was no way that I was ever going to be able to afford anything like his fees, but he just offered to do it just for the fun of it. So we did a, a Valentine's Day recital in Picton in 2003. And out of that, a group of people came together to create a classical music organizational committee. And from that, was born the Prince Edward County Classical Music Festival. <clears throat> Since year 2004, we've had every, every year except this one, COVID shut, shut us down. We kind of started the first festival that has really taken hold and been a success. And because of the success of that festival, others have started up, including one involving uh, the present music director of the Canadian Opera Company, who has a summer house in Wellington, which is just down the highway. Yeah, so it was just kind of serendipity that we ended up here, but it's turned out to be absolutely the best thing in our lives. And you're also doing talks and presentations and things about music and opera. What are they like? Uh, I got asked by the, um, the head of the Prince Edward County Arts Festival. She asked me if I would do... She was organizing a series of lectures, encounters with artists, and she had different people. Like There, was, there were writers and painters. Uh, there were jazz musicians. I was the only classical singer. Several years after that lecture, it was a series of three lectures, actually, uh, and uh, and they were all really well attended. So then several years after that, the Regent Theatre in Picton got uh, in touch with me because somebody there on the board of directors remembered the lectures that I had done. So they asked me if I would donate my time to do lectures on the opera broadcast that the Metropolitan Opera was doing at the theater. So I said, sure, I'll make you a deal. You let me come watch the broadcast for free. I'll be happy to do lectures for you. So, uh, so that's how that started. And I started doing it in 2013. And I remember it was for Goethe Dameron. Goethe Dameron 
or Twilight of the, the Gods, is the last opera in the series of four that go together that Wagner wrote a long saga called The Ring of the Nibelungen. As a matter of fact, Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings was actually inspired by him going to see The Ring of the Nibelungen, all four operas. You can't talk about Goethe Dämmerung unless you talk about Siegfried, which is the opera before that. You can't talk about Siegfried unless you talk about Die Walküre. And you can't talk about Die Walküre until you explain what's going on in Das Rheingold. So that meant that I had to do basically a lecture on the entire 15-hour opera cycle. <laughs> I ended up doing a three-hour lecture and nobody left. <laughs> that absolutely amazed me. Everybody stayed to hear it. So I don't know whether I was so riveting or Wagner was so riveting. I suspect it was Wagner. So to finish off, tell us about your shop, Diva Dormants. Oh, okay. Um, uh, once we decided that we were going to move into this building, uh, the, this derelict building that Rick was going to, to restore, uh, that meant that I was kind of wrapping up things in the little space across the street that, that we had rented. And I was kind of the financial manager looking after everything while uh, all of the renovations, because basically uh, the ground floor of the building had to be gutted and reconstructed. Some renovations also done uh, on the upper floors, and there were some, oh, there were some major scary things that we were finding in this building. I don't know if it would have remained standing for much longer. Right. It was a historical building. There were some really, really bad decisions that were made. The roof was flattening out. Uh, the floors were kind of collapsing. So Rick fixed all of that. So anyway, eventually it was back in workable order. The, two, the ground floor was converted into two shops. We, we cut the space in half. My friends, our, our partners in the venture, opened up a, a Mexican art shop, and I transferred the uh, kind of antiques and collectibles business over to, to this shop. So for the first couple of years, it was antiques and collectibles. After a while, I started noticing that the, the business was dropping off in antiques, except for jewelry. The antique jewelry would just fly out the door. So I started kind of pursuing that, and I ended up going further and further into fashion accessories and further away from antiques. And before I knew it, I was managing to convince people around here that they should buy feather boas for their wives because they deserve a woman in feathers. <laughs> and then I started selling I started selling hats. Big fancy, not toques, but big fancy dress hats with lots of feathers and lots of flowers. And word started getting around that there was a shop in this middle of this tiny village that sold lots of dress-up stuff. And the name of the shop was Diva. And the lady who, who runs the shop actually knows how to sing opera. So word of mouth started getting around, and I started getting ladies from Ottawa and Toronto and Montreal coming to my shop to buy hats and evening gloves and, and big fancy uh, crystal jewelry, which, which kind of blew me away, but it was word of mouth. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, uh, except for this year, and again, because of COVID, I've been selling hats for the Kentucky Derby and Ascot races and the Canada, uh, the Queen's Plate 
for about oh, probably 10 years now. Oh, and, and there was one lady who went to Buckingham Palace who had an audience with the Queen, and the Queen admired her hat. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently you're not allowed to give business cards to the Queen, which is really too bad. <laughs> <laughs> She'll get through some hats. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> That's what I do now. I have more fun than I really should be allowed to have. Uh, more fun than should be legal. Um, but I have it. Well, thank you very much for talking to me today. Okay, thank you. It's been my pleasure. It's so lovely to see you and talk to you. I wish you all good things and stay safe, stay healthy. Thank you very much. <laughs> see you later. Okay, bye. And now we're going to play you out with Celine singing Konchakovna's Aria from the opera Prince Igor by Alexander Borodin. Recorded in Thank you. 